Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we are back, finally, with part three of our series on childhood amnesia. We had a bit of an interruption in the series uh, last week to... First of all, to some sick days and then to a scheduled interview. But now we return to finish off the series. Uh, so I thought we should do a brief refresher on the stuff we talked about in the in the past couple of episodes here. So the term childhood amnesia uh, refers to a couple of different facts, which are, first of all, the fact that most adults cannot conjure any genuine firsthand episodic memories from before roughly the age of three. And there are some minor variations in that age horizon that have been observed to correlate with variables like gender. Girls tend to have slightly earlier memories. Uh, culture, different cultures have uh, on average different memory horizons. But uh, on average, we can say most people's earliest memories tend to be somewhere in the range of three years old or between three or four. And then the other fact is that once we do start having memories for the next four to five years after that, we have fewer memories than would be predicted by the normal rate of forgetting that holds true throughout the rest of your life. So first you got no memories usually, and then you've got fewer memories. And then finally, the, the regular rate of forgetting kicks in, maybe somewhere around seven or eight or so. Now, um, some people do claim to have much earlier memories, and we've heard from some of them in email. Uh, even uh, some people claim to have memories even up to and before birth. And, you know, it's impossible to rule that out. It's possible in some cases people do have those memories, but these claims also have to be considered alongside the fact that research shows it is very easy to create the false impression of a childhood memory spurred by all kinds of external prompting, anything from a photo, whether a real photo or a doctored one, uh, a story told by a parent. And it's clear that these false memories implanted later in life uh, in many cases feel completely genuine to us, even if they are fabricated purely for the purpose of an experiment. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we want to continue to drive that home that uh, to, to whatever extent a memory is accurate, augmented, fabricated, etc. That doesn't take away from the uh, subjective reality of the memory uh, and the importance of the memory or the um, or the pain of the memory. Well, sure. Yeah, One of the ways I would put it is that, like, the fact that someone has a false memory, as in they have a memory of an event that did not actually happen, uh, does not mean that they're, like, lying. It You know, like, we literally cannot tell the difference between real memories and false mem memories in many cases. Right. And I think it's safe to say that the many memories, if not all memories, are false to some degree. 
Right. Uh, now, in previous parts, we also talked about some of the experimental methods used to test for memory at early ages, including, you know, straightforward earliest memory prompts. Tell me your earliest memory. Uh, things like the word cue test. So tell me a memory associated with the following word. We use the example of jar and so forth. Uh, now, some research we discussed in previous episodes made a pretty convincing case, at least to me, that the explanation is not that the brain is incapable of forming memories before the average age of three or four. Um, one, of, one of the other studies we, we talked about included a scenario in which three-year-olds could produce details about recent events in their lives when interviewed along with their mothers, showing that they did have memories of recent things that had happened. Uh, and these memories could be elicited with cues from parents, though it seems in a lot of cases children this young will not offer details from memory spontaneously. But if you kind of coax it out of them, they can mm -hmm. produce details on their own that show they do remember things. Yeah, plus if mom is there to help, you know. Right. But when those very same kids were interviewed years later, after having been able to produce uh, uh, memories about recent events at age three, between the ages of seven and nine, many of those memories of early events were lost. Uh, and a lot more were lost by the ages of eight and nine than were lost by the age of seven. So there appears to be in later childhood kind of a, a period of rapid, massive forgetting where a lot of our earliest memories uh, kind of vanish like memories of a dream. So the big question is, why? Why is it that many of these uh, earliest memories or what memories exist of earliest events cannot be produced later in life, either later in childhood or especially in adulthood? Uh, there, there have been a lot of attempts to answer this question. There, of course, is still a lot of controversy about it. It is not a settled debate. But many of the proposed answers are based in the developing structure of the brain. And while I think there is absolutely something to these arguments, the, the neurodevelopmental structural arguments, uh, they don't exactly mean that the immature brain cannot make memories yet. Because, again, we uh, as we've seen, sometimes you can get uh, younger children to uh, de uh, provide details about recent events. And also young children can show examples of uh, of learning, say, learning how to manipulate uh, a simple mechanism in a toy and experiments that show that they do have memories that in some cases last for weeks or months, even before the age of three. So there is some remembering going on. Uh, instead, it seems to me more likely that that what's happening here is the memories that the brain makes at age one or two are prone to more rapid forgetting than the kinds of memories we would make at age 11 or 12. Or also, uh, those memories might be different than the memories made in later life in a way that makes them more difficult to retrieve after we age past that memory horizon. So for the neurodevelopmental structural arguments, we, we looked at one paper in part two arguing that the hippocampal memory system uh, is actually very active in the first few years of life. That's the normal memory system. A lot is going on there when you're, you know, two years old or so. But the, this paper argued that instead of making memories of the kind that will be stored for the rest of your life, what it's primarily doing uh, with the processing of, in, of information from experiences is learning how to learn. And uh, complementary to this, I think one structural developmental explanation that's been offered is that uh, a lot of early autobiographical memories may be lost due to the rapid rate of neurogenesis during childhood. So as new brain cells are formed, especially in the hippocampus, this may erode the stability of the structural basis of existing memories. So, you know, the hippocampus is developing rapidly. You're sort of like... Um, you know, rebuilding the house constantly in real time, in which case the rooms that existed, you know, a, a year ago might not really exist anymore as rooms down the road. It's almost heartbreaking to think about that with, with childhood memories. Yeah. Uh, but like the house course, is getting bigger, you know, you can put more in mm -hmm. it, but it, you're also dismantling as you do. Yeah, and I guess it's it's like thinking of it in terms of the of the the young child. It's like the the house that is being built is going to be magnificent as well, and it's built on the bones of the house that came before. Uh, so you can't get too uh, sentimental about uh, that which is being lost as a necessary part of the child's uh, maturing. But I, I still reserve the right to cry a little bit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing. 
Well, if you recall, I got interested in this whole idea because uh, uh, of a story about uh, my daughter who is uh, actually she. I said five months last time, you know, she's coming up on six months now. Wow. Uh, and we were, we were trying to figure out, okay, so we've been really making her laugh a lot by dropping uh, a cloth on her face. She thinks this is hilarious. Mm -hmm. Just lay her down on the blanket and drop the cloth from above. And we were like, is she going to remember that she thought this was funny? Will she be able to explain why she thought it was funny when she's older? And unfortunately it, it breaks my heart. I think the answer is probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Still, this, these are prime years to just kill it as a as a dad stand up. Yeah, uh, so yeah, just just keep developing that material. But anyway, so while the while the overall causes of childhood amnesia are still being debated in the scientific literature, uh, I'm I'm very one over that at least one of the major causes probably is the neurodevelopmental issue we talked about in the last episode with the, the hippocampus coming online. Uh, and, and developing, of course, uh, it also seems plausible that it's a phenomenon with multiple contributing causes. And uh, maybe some are based not just in the physical development of the brain, but possibly in some more externally visible developmental milestones, uh, maybe based in the environment and, and things we learn. And uh, so I thought be, before we move away from this topic, we should explore a few of those ideas as well. So another factor I've read about linked to childhood amnesia, uh, possibly explaining elements of it, is language. Uh, th this seems like an obvious place to go. Uh, the language and the linguistic environment in which a child grows up. What if the extent to which we record experiences as memories and the form in which they're stored and our later ability to retrieve and make sense of those memories is in some way dependent on language? Uh, the typical childhood memory horizon tends to come pretty much right in the middle of a period of rapid development of language skills and the acquisition of vocabulary. So could it be that the adult capacity for memory greatly depends on the use of, of words and concepts that we gain during this language acquisition period? Could be coincidence, but developing skills and manipulating different types of subjects and predicates, I think, could play a role in the, in the onset of autobiographical memories that persist over time. Because language obviously plays a major role in how we as adults remember and tell autobiographical memories. Like, you ever notice how when you, when you tell a story from memory, you often end up using the same or similar words to do so? Why is that? I mean, even if you, so you can understand how if you are like reporting speech in a memory, you would want to use the same words to do so because you're reporting what somebody said. But say you're reporting a nonverbal event, just like a walk you went on and things you saw. Very often you use the same or similar words to do so, or at least I, I think I do. And most people I notice seem to do. W would this be your experience also? Yeah. And I, I do. It kind of brings me back to the uh, the, the topic of of dad, uh, stand up comedian, because I wonder like to a large extent, it's like you, you keep retelling a story more or less the same way because you know, what's really working, you know, yeah. like what, um, yeah. uh, what makes it more dramatic, what makes it more funny, which, uh, you know, how you can frame it in a way that also brings to mind like scenes from movies or something. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of that going on. Oh, well, it's interesting you bring up the role of entertainment in the, the language used to uh, relate a memory. That, that'll come up again in just a minute. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think I would acknowledge that certain types of vocabulary might actually make the difference between the ability to coherently remember an event and recall it years later versus the, you know, the characteristics that often come up when people are describing their very earliest memories, even the ones we've heard of from from listeners in the email we got after the first couple of parts, like the kind of rare, fragmented, decontextualized sensory memories that people often produce as their very earliest. Those have a very different character uh, than a lot of later memories. And, and that may, it seems to me like those differences could correlate with not really having the language to organize them as memories at the time they're formed. But if language does play an important role in establishing the capacity for long-term memories about your life, uh, what if it's not just conceptual vocabulary? Another way language could have something to do with memory in early childhood is, uh, is narrative. So when you are asked to explain a memory from childhood, for example, uh, you know, what's the first time you can remember swimming in the ocean? 
you could say, uh, I was in Florida, I was about three. Or you could say, well, I was with my mom and dad, and we were in Florida, and the sand was white. And I remember I saw a crab, and it scared me. But my dad told me it was safe, and the crab wouldn't chase me. And then the water was cold. It was colder than the bath. And then salt water got in my nose. And I didn't like that at first, but then I did. And then later we went to dinner at a restaurant, and my dad got steamed crabs. And he remembered the crab on the beach, and he kept teasing me. He made the crab creep up on me on the table. Oh, is this an actual memory for you? No, I just made it up, but it seems like it could be. Because, I mean, you, you do have a, a, a certain fascination with crabs. So if, if this were a legitimate memory, perhaps, Joe, perhaps we are, um, we're retrieving this memory uh, through oh, the exercise yes. of podcasting. This explains everything. It's how I got Corman <laughs> brain, and now it's, it's just leaking out in, in a made-up story right here. Uh, but no, so at least in the way you tell stories from childhood, there is a wide range of stylistic flexibility. You could mention things in a dry, informational manner, reporting just where you were and what happened, or you could offer information more in the kind of narrative style that people enjoy and make meaning out of when they tell stories to each other. And you could call this distinction sort of reporting versus reminiscing, uh, you know, with the storytelling being more social in nature and more entertainment focused, honestly. Uh, so that, that comes back to your thing about having having a certain uh, format of the memory that is based around the language you've found is best to express it for entertainment value or for communicating what you're trying to get across. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, exaggeration, also I find, is also a tool you often see employed. Uh, sometimes, uh, I guess at later ages, uh, you see it used intentionally, intentionally ex- ex- uh, exaggerating uh, the, the emotional context of an event uh, in order to make a better story out of it. Though I've also seen much younger children do that. I remember and this was like a birthday party I took my son to, and there's a slip and slide. Uh, tensions were running high, I think. And, uh, <laughs> and an adult went down the slip and slide, and then the, the birthday boy uh, exclaimed, this is a disaster and seemed rather <laughs> um, perturbed by the whole scenario. I don't know how that that experience matured or or stayed or stick stuck around as a memory. But like that kind of exaggeration, I can imagine, could make it if it was truly viewed as a disaster, <laughs> as a catastrophe of uh, a non-child going down a slip and slide. Well, just think about, yeah, if that child later tells that story, all the different ways that the story could be loaded. I mean, it could Mm -hmm. be loaded with like humor, sort of ironic reflection on how one feels as a child. Or I don't know, maybe if you mature a certain way, you might still take it very seriously and be upset about the slip and slide. Um, But there's all this loading in stories that is not just merely reporting the facts about an event. But uh, to make the facts reported make sense within some broader story. You might call this uh, having the facts contexted. That's how it was expressed in the abstract of of a paper I was looking at. Uh, But you also make evaluative statements and implications about those facts. So not just why happened, but I felt X about Y. Mm. And I've read numerous sources uh, alleging that there there could be a link between the narrative reminiscing style of, uh, say, the family or the environment in which a child grows up and the age at which those children form lasting memories. Uh, I was reading about this in one article in the, the Berkeley Greater Good magazine by uh, Gene Shinsky. And uh, another article in the in the BBC from 2016 by Zaria Gorvit. Uh, these were essentially making the link that... Uh, uh, that some researchers think more elaborate, coherent narratives could uh, could cause children to have memories that last longer. Uh, and one example uh, was cited in that BBC article. It was uh, a, a paper done by the Cornell University psychology professor Chi Wang, who, uh, who was the author of a paper called Culture Effects on Adults' Earliest Childhood Recollection and Self-Description, Implications for the Relation Between Memory and the Self, published in the uh, Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 2001. And this found that uh, by comparing childhood stories told by Chinese and American college students, 
American students' stories tended to be longer and more elaborate, with more self-focused evaluations, whereas the Chinese stories were more restrained and factual. Uh, And also, the average earliest memories of the American students were a little bit earlier. And this personally squared with Wang's experience of growing up in China, where she said that the cultural norm was that there was less emphasis on stories of early childhood memories. And she gives a quote to the BBC saying, if society is telling you those memories are important to you, you'll hold on to them. And this also relates to cross-cultural studies saying that uh, some of the examples of the the people with, uh, on average, the earliest childhood memories tend to be people of the Maori culture. And these same studies find that Maori families tend to place a lot of emphasis on elaborate narrative storytelling in the past. So I thought this was interesting that this could connect to some of the differences we've already read about and I think talked about in the first episode um, about uh, yeah, cross-cultural differences in the age of the earliest memories uh, and also gender differences because there have been some studies showing that uh, girls tend to have slightly uh, uh, earlier memories on average than boys and that girls in childhood tend to re-relate stories in a more contexted and evaluative manner. But whatever the particulars of how it works, it, it's certainly not hard for me to imagine that the storytelling environment in which you grow up plays a large role on what and how you remember things from your earliest childhood. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fascinating. And um, uh, and, and something also just to, to keep in mind, too, um, uh, that I remember uh, one of the, the sources I quoted in maybe the first episode mentioned, and that is that uh, there's no right or wrong way, like right. earlier memories of childhood versus later memories. Neither one is healthier or more correct. The brain remembers what it needs to remember. Right. And while playing on that, one way to interpret uh, the, these findings, if they are correct, is that maybe by inhabiting an environment where there is a lot of uh, elaborate narrative storytelling that involves uh, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a contexting of events and including evaluations, that is an environment that tells a child that they need to remember things in that manner and thus makes them easier to retrieve and relate later on. Mm-hmm. Of course, the interesting thing being that, again, this is all coming back to autobiographical memories, the kind of memories for uh, like events in your life that like you can later retell as stories. And this doesn't necessarily correspond to other types of memory, like, say, memory of how to do something, you know, memories that we often think of not as, uh, quote, memory, but as learning. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. 
In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, so the language-based uh, memory development idea has been around for a long time, and it, it has its proponents, though I think also it has its critics. And I don't think we should place too much emphasis on things like the role of language because uh, one, one big reason here is that some analogs to infantile amnesia have been discovered in animals like rats. Uh, you know, so there are rat experiments showing kind of uh, similar patterns of forgetting of the earliest experiences as rats age into adulthood. Rats, of course, never acquire language, but show some similar patterns. So it's clear that language is not the deciding factor, but may play a role in, say, the timing of different stages of, of memory acquisition. Another older idea that might still have something to do with the uh, with childhood amnesia. What about the role of what researchers have called the cognitive self? I was reading about this in a paper called On Resolving the Enigma of Infantile Amnesia by Mark Howe and Mary Courage, published in Psychological Bulletin in 1993. And they discussed the idea of what if the crucial factor in the establishment of lasting autobiographical memories is the development of the concept of I and me, related in a way to the concept of theory of mind, understanding that your mind is different from the minds of others, that you know things other people don't know and have thoughts and feelings other people don't have, and that they likewise know things and have thoughts and feelings that you cannot share in unless they tell you. Under this proposal, it's not until we have mastered the concept of a self different from others that we're able to organize our memories into a sensical form that can be retrieved across time. Uh, how encourage write in their conclusion, quote, a series of significant developmental events take place when infants are between 18 and 30 months of age that prepare them to talk about personally experienced events. First, at about 18 months of age, infants learn to recognize their features in the mirror. The next acquisition is a more advanced representation of the self reflected in the pronomial reference to the self as I and me in the early months of the second year. Finally, the child learns to talk about immediate and then more distant past events in narrative, the language of autobiographical memory. Both narrative and autobiographical memory continue to develop in structure, organization, and content over the preschool years, but by that time, infantile amnesia is indeed a phenomenon of the past. Uh, and so this one's a little bit different because this one does not depend, while it's related to language, their idea of the concept of the, the uh, cognitive self does not rely entirely on language. And they think there are ways that the cognitive self can be demonstrated before a child acquires the words in which to express it. But they, they think that the child needs a concept of self and I separate from the world and the events in the world in order to put the memories into a form that can later be accessed and expressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, because it sounds like without that, there's no there's no like weight. There's no structure. It's, it's just uh, like memories of um, potentially 
of just environments and uh, and yeah. groups of people without the actual connection of like this va- this is a value because I am at the center of it. That's right, and that would connect uh, again to the the ideas about narrative and maybe the important role of say. Uh, evaluative uh, statements about memories uh, helping us to be able to recall them later. Yeah. The child is... uh, Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the the child is like, it's nice, but what is in it for me? Yeah. (laughs) I remember it. So in the end, when I'm looking at all these uh, explanations, uh, I don't know, of course, I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm not a neuroscientist or, or, or a developmental psychologist, so I don't pretend to be expressing expertise on this. But I just say personally, I feel pretty convinced by the neurodevelopmental arguments, the ones about the, the development of the hippocampal memory system, uh, that, that there's clearly some kind of like structural change going on in the brain in the early years of life. And this uh, this plays a major role in why we don't retain all these memories until uh, until later life. As far as these explanations based in uh, language and the cognitive self and stuff, I uh, I don't know. It seems it seems like the the evidence for them is a little bit softer, but I'm very interested in them and they seem plausible to me, at least. Mm, Yeah, yeah. But basically, all the papers I read on this subject are, you know, <laughs> the old cliche. They're calling for more research, they're like, yeah. you know, widely acknowledging this is not a settled question, and so you know, that we have some interesting ideas, but ultimately, we don't know for sure why childhood amnesia happens, and and maybe more research could help settle it. Now, we've discussed false memories a, a good bit in these episodes. You know, talking about. Um uh, very early childhood memories that are to some degree falsified, unaugmented. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's it's easy to mostly focus on the potential pitfalls of false memories or or to land somewhere on sort of like the, the neutral impact that they may have. But uh, I also wanted to, to tackle the question of just like, why is it also advantageous to have false memories? Like, why would this at all be adaptive? Um, is there an upside to this mental ability or is this all just kind of junk? Is this just kind of a byproduct of the way that our brains have developed? Well, I would say that this is not the only way in which our brains consistently generate false beliefs. And I think when our brains do that, they're usually doing it for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, and yeah, certainly this ties into larger issues of, of how we falsify beliefs, how we falsify memories, how we obsess over perhaps impractical ideas of what the future might hold. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of, of uh, a couple of, uh, of, of quotes here. I believe it was uh, Alan Roegrelet who commented that, uh, or he may have been quoting somebody uh, else, actually, that, um, that, that uh, repetition and recollection are the same uh, force, but in different directions. Uh, I, I remember, too, I think uh, R. Scott Baker commenting that, uh, that like science fiction and fantasy kind of both fulfill the same purpose, but going either into the past or into the future, sort of constructing um, an, an unrealistic but far-fetched version of the future based on where we are now, and then the other is a version of the past that is equally fantastic and, and, and illogical and obviously not true, but telling about where we are in the present. Mm. So, you know, we're these strange creatures that um, that see ourselves as as occupying this space, this now and uh, remembering what came before, predicting what is about to come. And then it's kind of open to discussion if there is actually a now point, like, are we actually there or is that also a construction of the past? Mm. But at any rate, I, I, I wanted to see what uh, uh, experts were saying about this. So I was reading a, a paper titled False Memories. What the hell are they for? Uh, by Aaron J. Newman and D. Stephen Lindsay, published in Applied Cognitive Psychology back in 2009. And I thought the authors uh, made some good points here. Um, and a number of these are going to um, be things that, you know, we've discussed in the show before or are, I guess, generally understood about uh, about memory and the brain. But uh, first of all, this, this is all part of mental our mental time travel abilities that enable us to experience our memories of the past with a feeling of subjective clarity while also enabling us to produce mental models of potential futures. Quote, recalling an autobiographical experience involves piecing together activated memorial information while at the same time making inferences based on other information available to us. Biases, stereotypes, and expectations that act on our current thinking also act on inferences that we make about mental events arising from the past. 
So obviously, given this system, failures are inevitable. Memory failures are inevitable. False memories, along with inaccurate or unlikely ruminated scenarios of the future, uh, this is all just part of living with our human understanding of reality. And so various methods uh, can be used and have been studied to produce false memories of events, the authors point out. These include suggestion via imagination exercises, the use of photographs, dream interpretation, guided imagery, and paraphrasing. I mean, even this, um, you know, kind of joking uh, example that we busted out earlier of, of you bringing up a hypothetical, uh, entirely made up memory of childhood about crabs in the, in, and, uh, and it was so loaded with crabs. It's a relatively easy exercise for, for one to then turn that back on the person who created it and saying, well, is that completely made up? What does that say about you? Why did you bring up the crab so many times? You know, and you can begin to, to build on that. Well, yes. And if you took that same story and said, hey, uh, you know, your parents told us the story about when you went to the beach when you were little. Do, do you, you remember this? Well, you might not necessarily at first or you might think, well, maybe I do. And then over time, that could very easily turn into what feels like a real memory for you. Yeah. And it, it also now there are a number of factors to keep in mind, too. Um, it, it's worth noting that the results in experiments uh, in, in involving the creation or the fostering of, of false recollections, it depends uh, on the degree to which a memory is falsified. For example, uh, in many of these experiments, you'll find examples where they'll find out about an actual childhood memory. Like they would, in this case, say, talk to one of your parents and ask about your earliest beach encounter and then uh, use that um, in the construction of a false memory. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you also have to take into account the weight of the memory uh, that is being um, built up or augmented. So uh, it's one thing, for for example, for me to suggest, yeah, maybe you were really fascinated by crabs like you like you were in this uh, this this false story of childhood. It's another to say, um, you know, maybe that they, they had a, you know, just you were profoundly frightened by the crabs and this like totally shaped who you are. You know, it's like how how much weight are you putting on the memory? Mm -hmm. But for instance, one study referenced in this paper had high results of memory inception when you, you were trying to get them to remember a childhood prank. Now, mm -hmm. you know, nothing too severe. But, you know, something that where it's not going to like shake the core of their being or really mess around too many understandings of self. It's just like, let's let's generate this this memory of this prank that probably didn't actually occur. Yes. Yeah, so if I'm understanding right, this might imply it's easier to generate a a false memory for an event that uh, is not really like does not shake the core of your what you how you would characterize your childhood, but rather for a kind of like uh, weird, quirky, funny little event that, that doesn't really change anything about your life. Right. And of course, a lot of the, the very sorts of memories, early childhood memories that we've been discussing here, the kind that are sort of shared among family are exactly the sort of memory. You know, they're not necessarily profound or anything. They're amusing. They're fun. And therefore, it's easy to grab onto it. Now, uh, the authors also point out that social factors such as group membership in the media as well can seemingly influence uh, memories like this as well. Uh, quote, socially driven distortions in memory. Uh, these that may have several benefits for the individual, such as improving social relationships within a group or they may improve social group coherence. Uh, so false memories can be self-enhancing in many ways, but they can also be group enhancing. And in this, we're getting we're, we're speaking broadly beyond merely like childhood memories, but even getting into things where, say, you were a part of a group, you join a group where memories of, say, even paranormal experiences mm -hmm. have value. They bring you closer to the people in a group or they enhance the overall um, uh, connectivity of the group. This is exactly what I was going to hypothesize earlier when you were talking. So I brought up, you know, there are other ways that our brain consistently produces false beliefs. Mm -hmm. uh, and there you would suspect that there's probably an adaptive reason for doing that. Like it, there's survival benefit. That's why our brains work that way. And my guess was going to be social function that there yeah. that the same way that, you know, we can um, have not false memories, but false beliefs about the external world. 
these can easily be induced through uh, a a concept known as identity protective cognition. Mm -hmm. You know, people will reason in ways that are not strictly logical and will come to uh, conclusions that they would find to be false if they were disinterested in the issue. But there is some social identity reason for coming to that belief. You know, in order to fit in with my social group, I need to be the kind of person that believes X. So I Actually, I do believe X, and it is right. And uh, I think the same could easily be true of memories. Uh, it probably matters more for your survival that you're getting along good with your group than that, like, you actually remembered what happened last Tuesday a year ago correctly. So if there's a way to remember that event incorrectly, but that would be sort of, like, fun to share as a, as a group together to tell that story and all bond and all feel good about each other, well, then maybe you'll go that way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, all this makes sense, I think, because, of course, humans are highly social creatures. We've we've talked about this before. This has a, had a, an enormous impact um, on the human animal. So is it any surprise that we help each other remember events of our past? Is it any surprise that these memories may be distorted for the betterment of one's own integration with a group or the overall coherence of the group? Because for the social animal, the group is is not it's not just nice to have like the group is survival. Being yeah. able to bond with the group has uh, has a real adaptive advantage and may and, and, and being able to fit in, even if you're distorting the actual uh, occurrence of events in the past, this may frequently outweigh the value of objective reality. So it's better if all your friends are laughing about, hey, remember that time, Johnny? I don't know. Yeah. Chase me with a steamed crab and you don't really remember that. It's probably better for your brain to convince you you do remember that so you can laugh along with everybody else than to say like, no, I don't think that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but again, these these are generalizations. So, you know, individual experience is going to is going to differ. And there, there are all sorts of caveats that can come into play. But, yeah, I think this is fascinating to think about. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better 
because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now, in uh, I think both of the last couple of episodes, we talked a little bit about myth babies and uh, legendary babies of <laughs> history, child Hercules, child Jesus, child Krishna, and so forth. Um, so I do have just a little bit more on this, getting into the idea of the child hero and the child saint. Okay, we're going to do another uh, super baby sidebar here. Yeah, and this one, uh, this one is going to end up bringing up child mortality again. So um, uh, my apologies. It was not my intent to d- discuss this more, but in just diving into the topic, it like becomes an essential part <laughs> of understanding uh, some of these traditions. Okay. So, um, first of all, just talking about infant heroes in Greek tradition. Uh, uh, one one uh, paper I was looking at here was Baby and Child Heroes in Ancient Greece by Corinne Ondina Pash. And uh, one said, when, when it comes to the, the child hero proper and not merely the infant form of an, of an adult hero, so not just merely baby Hercules, but uh, like a, a child hero that is uh, a hero in and of itself, they're defined not by their actions and exploits, as with adult heroes, but by their untimely deaths, which immortalize them as in, in hero cults. And these include such examples as the children of Medea and the children of Heracles. Mm. Uh, to quote uh, Posh here, quote, from parental fears and sense of guilt arise the stories, songs, and sanctuaries honoring child heroes. Both myth and ritual articulate these very basic human anxieties, yet the emphasis is ultimately on the beauty that transcends the gruesomeness of these narratives and transforms dread into poetry. I think this is also interesting to consider when you look at the long list of child saints in the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these include both martyred children and adults, as well as children who died at a young age, but were said to have been very mature, very holy uh, in their young life in a way that it's almost like they were they were too holy for this world and therefore could not remain here. So just a couple of examples to um, uh, to, to illustrate both of these categories. Uh, there's St. Rumwald of Buckingham uh, from the year 662, said to have uh, lived only for three days, but uh, the child was said to be able to speak and profess his faith right away. In fact, it's, according to the legend, requested his own baptism and even delivered a sermon. He requested it, but did he get it? Did they baptize uh, him? Yeah, I believe that's part of the story. <laughs> oh, okay. He got the baptism and he got to deliver a sermon, um, which, you know, is a, is a comical image in some in some ways. But also you understand where the like the creative energy of this comes from, like the idea of like a, a, a child and the and the the, the, the the attachment we feel to a child, the perfection and yet imperfection of a child. And then if there is and, and then when you factor in these various faith models of of uh, how salvation is supposed to work, if you you factor in just the, the trauma of losing a young child, you can see where stories like this could be created. Mm. And then, of course, you also have examples of um, martyrs. Uh, there's a Sicarius of Bethlehem uh, said to have been killed in King Herod's massacre of the innocent somewhere between 7 and 2 BCE. Uh, the alleged remains of the child are still held as holy relics today. So in these cases, you know, the child didn't, it's not my understanding, at least in this case, and, and this may vary from, from telling to telling, a case where the child itself is not said to have, have been holy or done anything holy, but uh, was victim of some, or allegedly the victim of some sort of um, a heinous act. Yeah, I'd lean on allegedly on that one because I think yeah. the, the story of the slaughter of the innocents, uh, from what I recall, is, is largely considered to be legendary. Yeah, and it's, and of course, it's very notable that some of the more notorious examples of child martyrs 
were utilized in cases of blood libel against Jewish communities. Um, mm. Hugh of Lincoln in the 13th century and Simon Trent in the 15th century being two prime examples. And these are sadly not the only examples you can pull out. Uh, cases where the, uh, you know, the alleged murder of a child was then used as an excuse for, um, for acts of violence against communities that were blamed uh, uh, with that to death. So obviously kind of a depressing place I know to wind up in this tangent. And I didn't really, again, didn't really want to discuss dead children again, but I guess it's unavoidable. You know, why does a child stand out in a mythic narrative? It may be about who that child will become, but there's also a weight to the child that does not pass on into mythic adulthood. Um, you know, and it can be clearly be leveraged in different ways as a rallying cry of martyrdom, as an inspiration of innocence, uh, as an inspiration for violence and horror. Um, you know, it can be uh, the kind of narrative that can circumvent the cruelty of the world or inspire more cruelty. There's, you know, you can you can go in various directions with it. Now, one final thing I wanted to, to discuss here a little bit, and I, I think we, we alluded to it a little bit earlier in this episode, is that, you know, as, as we've discussed already, there are numerous examples of suggested falsified memories to turn to, including memories of various paranormal encounters, uh, different forms of abuse. And indeed, we can also throw supposed memories of past lives into the mix. You know, you can you, you'll have you, you can certainly find people who claim to remember very early childhood, people who claim to remember their birth, but also people who claim to remember a time before their birth, uh, before they were born, either in the womb or before the womb, in another life before the womb. And, you know, so, um, uh, you know, it's uh, this, again, speaks to the power of our ability to create and falsify meaningful memories. And it's not too big of a leap, right? If you can already create a memory of a thing that didn't occur, it's not too much of a leap to remember supposed lives before this one as well. Right. Um, and and there a lot of individuals have written on this and theorized on on this sort of thing. Um, Czech psychiatrist Stanislav Grof theorized that some near death experiences are actually a kind of channeling of birth memories, <laughs> with the so called tunnel of light representing the birth canal. Hmm. This I'm a of course skeptical about that. <laughs> yes, yeah. This is you know very. Everyone has a right to be very skeptical of this. Um, it's I've seen it refuted by skeptics on a number of grounds, including that the the experience of being born would not look like this, even if your infant head were in the right position and your eyes were actually open, and again you were capable of forming memories like this. So uh, it, I think there's there's very strong reasons to be skeptical of this being an actual memory. But like we've said, you get in there and you start tinkering with your memories, start recalling them, you start bringing in content, uh, you know, from uh, different communities and learned individuals, uh, you can start augmenting things, you can start falsifying things. And what you end up with can still be highly meaningful. It can still, uh, you know, to you, it can also uh, have an impact on uh, the, the creation of, um, of, of art and literature. Um, uh, if the name Stanislav Grav sounds familiar Longtime listeners might remember it coming up in an episode that Christian and I did on the art of H.R. Giger, because these very metaphors, you know, the, the tunnel of light, near death and, and pre-birth, uh, these were explored in some of Giger's artwork. And Groff actually authored a 2018 book of Giger's work titled H.R. Giger and the Zeitgeist of the 20th Century. Groff, by the way, was also a technical advisor on Douglas Trumbull's 1983 film Brainstorm that had uh, Christopher Walken in it, I believe. So, uh, again, not to say that you know, these can't be potent ideas, but they do seem to stand outside of science. They're, um, you know, these are more, we're, we're getting more into the area of, uh, of religion and myth and, um, and, and even the paranormal. But I think it all speaks to just how invested we can become in the story of us and those vast blank spaces in our recollection, as, uh, you know, as well as any glimmers that we might sense in the dark that we could then augment and accentuate into something else, something that is meaningful to us or makes us feel part of a group, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, there, there are examples of this line of thinking from, from outside of science, concepts of pre-existence in various cultures. Uh, there's the concept of reincarnation or the transmigration of the soul. Uh, and we see this in various traditions, Greek traditions, early Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, medieval Jewish mysticism, new religious movements, and so many more examples. There were some early Christians who believed in reincarnation. Yeah, yeah. I was reading a little bit about this, uh, you know, the idea of a pre-mortal existence of the soul. 
uh, various strains of thought concerning the uh, not only the idea that the human soul was was pre had a preexistence that it was say created before the physical creation of the universe and I guess you know the souls are just sitting around waiting uh, to be in, installed in a physical form and then there is also a fair amount of thought about the idea of the preexistence of, of of Jesus of Jesus Christ the idea that yes. God is going to take on this sort of mortal incarnation because he has to go to earth and die for everyone's sins and so forth. But uh, but then there, there are these, some lines of thought that are like, okay, well, what was he doing before then? Uh, and I guess on one hand, you could say, well, he just had, God had not incarnated yet. So it's like he hadn't butted off into a physical form. But then there are these other lines of thought that's like, oh yeah, no, he's there. He's just sitting around waiting, but he just hasn't gone to earth yet. Um, for example, I was I was reading that there was one early Christian theologian, I believe this is origin of, uh, I think of Alexandria, who lived at 185 through 253, taught that human souls existed for before creation. And this was something that he would later be accused of heresy for. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think the big take home from all of this is that we have an impressive ability to create meaningful memories out of various sources that are not pure recollection to the limited extent that there is pure like recollection of anything. And I, you know, I guess I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with fostering memories of infancy, birth or life before birth, so long as it improves one's quality of life and it doesn't take anything away from you or others. Uh, you know, if that's the case, then what's the harm in it? Uh, I think the way I'd put my feeling is reminisce and enjoy your memories, but also be aware of the the fact that some of them may not have a factual basis yeah yeah they, when i was thinking about this i was trying to think well how could it be harmful and i think that the main sticking point that i could come up with is if one's claims of of, me of false memories could embolden harmful models and others so this is just a mm. purely hypothetical scenario but uh, imagine that you through one method or another that we've discussed here fostered memory of alien abduction that for you is awe-inspiring and beneficial. Like, I remember seeing aliens uh, when I was a child, and isn't that great? I, you know, this is my, you know, brain-expanding, cosmos-appreciating moment. But what if your pronounced belief in these experiences enables someone else to further engage in a harmful variation on it? Or on the other hand, what if, uh, here's another scenario, what if your harmless accounts of a past life embolden uh, someone else to and then wind up in a situation where they're being manipulated or conned by someone who is taking advantage of mm -hmm. this, you know, longing for or recollection of a past life. Telling you uh, this stuff is real and I can I can find your past selves for you for a price. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, you know, there's, of course, there can be a lot of gray area in any scenario like that. But, um, you know, and it, this is you know, hypothetical, but, uh, you know, it's it's worth considering, I think, that in any given paranormal area, uh, you know, it's going to be dependent on more than just mere professed experience and or augmented or false memories. There may also be disingenuous actors involved, manipulators of disinformation, and of course, just outright con artists as well. So, uh, I don't know, food for thought. Uh, yeah, I, I'd reiterate what I said. I mean, uh, you know, you, you can you can enjoy all your family memories and all the you know, all the good stuff, but also just be realistic about the fallibility of memory. Yeah, yeah. If there were a video camera present, it may not actually have happened the way you remember it. But, right. you know, that our memory is all we've got. Yeah. <laughs> or in many cases, it's all we got. I guess sometimes you did have a video camera there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have the video, the video and you have the, the photographs, which then can, of course, be used to, uh, to falsify memories. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's and uh, of course, uh, with advances in technology, things are uh, you're only going to get uh, more complicated on that on those grounds. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close out this uh, I guess, trilogy of episodes here. Uh, but we'd continue to, to love to hear from everyone out there. If you have thoughts on early childhood memories, you want to share early childhood memories, you know, uh, memories of uh, past lives, any of the, anything that falls under the uh, under the, the heading of the topic here, uh, you know, write in. Uh, we, we, would, we would love to, to listen to uh, you and discuss uh, any of this potentially on future episodes of Listener Mail. Listener Mail is published on Mondays. On Wednesdays, we do short-form artifact or monster fact episodes, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Days. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. 
Huge thanks to our audio producer, JJ Pausway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.